Along with the two magnificent passion settings, St Matthew and St John, Bach's Mass in B minor is almost routinely held up as one of the greatest achievements in Western religious music. But there's one immediately obvious contrast. The Passions were written with a very definite purpose in mind, to focus and enhance the religious devotion of the congregation at St Thomas's Church in Leipzig. That's where Bach was cantor, music director, from 1723 until his death in 1750. But the Mass in B minor? When it comes to the function of this great work, this really is a mystery. It was one of Bach's last major projects. He partly assembled it from works he'd already composed, taking arias from cantatas and from an early setting of the Kyrie and the Gloria. But he adapted these considerably and turned them into a completely new work, a monument in its own right. The Mass in B minor was put together at the same time as Bach was composing his great Art of Fugue. The latter is a summation of Bach's lifelong preoccupation with counterpoint, which was an art that was going rather out of fashion by the mid-18th century. The Mass in B minor, on the other hand, can be seen as a comparable, indeed complementary, summation of Bach's experience as a composer of religious devotional music, and indeed of his writing for the voice. Some of the most rich and intricate choral writing he ever contrived is to be found in the B minor Mass. For example, the sublime ethereal dancing triplets of the Sanctus. This music is full of dancing threes, triplet rhythms, voices moving in three parts. It suggests angelic figures dancing before the throne of God, but also here is the potent number symbolism that was so popular with Lutherans in Bach's day. Three obviously stands for the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, all combined in a truly ecstatic polyphony. The Sanctus from the B minor Mass. It's said that when the very young Gustav Holst heard those descending bass figures, he had to hold onto his seat for fear he might just float away. Alongside choral marvels like that, we have breathtakingly beautiful solo writing, and there's quite a contrast even there. On the one hand, we have Bach's apparent delight in the sheer sound and athletic capabilities of the solo voice or voices. Take the Christe Eleison, the second movement of the first section, the Kyrie. This is an expression of penitence, a direct address to God incarnate, Christ have mercy. But here we have two sopranos creating such joyous, mellifluous sounds it reminds me of Hardy's description of the darkling thrush and his exquisite carolings.
At the other extreme, literally as near to the end of the B minor mass as the Christe is near to the beginning, is the prayer to Christ as Lamb of God, Agnus Dei. It's another appeal for mercy. The alto takes the lead this time, and there's no mistaking the serious or the personal urgency of this music. in the B minor mass, you get the sense that Bach is keen to leave absolutely nothing out. Every single compositional skill he has is offered in praise of God. It's a musical offering, to take the title of another of his pieces, in a new sense. The grand opening Kyrie starts with one of those moments when the chorus is almost like a group of individuals pouring out prayer to God, as in the more dramatic moments in the Matthew Passion. The rising soprano pendants at the end of each phrase add to the intensity. The form of the Kyrie in the liturgy is very simple. Lord have mercy, Kyrie eleison. Christ have mercy, Christe eleison. And then another Kyrie eleison. In the B minor mass, though, the second Kyrie is no mere recapitulation. Bach seems to be adopting a deliberately archaic tone. The orchestra, instead of intertwining with the voices, now simply supports them, as is very common in early Baroque liturgical music. Monteverdi, for instance, or Bach's great German forebear Heinrich Schütz. Bach even adopts an old-fashioned notational style in the score here, with longer note values, minims, instead of crotchets. It's almost as though Bach is stressing on the page the historical continuity with the religious music of the past. the other extreme from that kind of contained archaism, we find Bach's love of musical imagery. In the Gloria, we come to the section Quitolis, Lamb of God who bears the sins of the world. Again, there's an address to the incarnate Christ, bearer of man's sins. 
anguished choral writing is joined by yet more exquisite carolings, this time on flutes, hovering above the chorus like the Holy Spirit in the symbolic form of the dove fluttering above the penitents. It reminds me of St Paul's words, the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. We've already heard Bach adopting a kind of archaic tone in the B minor Mass, but he isn't just reaching back into the remote history of church music, he's also perhaps looking into the remote history of the church itself. It's striking that as a Lutheran, a Protestant, Bach chose to set words of the Roman Catholic Mass. Lutheran composers sometimes used the text of the first two parts of the Mass, the Kyrie and the Gloria. They were less theologically problematic than the words of the Nicene Creed, with its strongly sacramental imagery that comes over especially in the original Latin. Works performed in Lutheran churches with the title Missa were normally just those first two sections of the Mass. But when Bach turned to the Credo, with its stress on one holy Catholic and apostolic church, he turns to music associated with the Roman Catholic tradition, plain chant. He takes the old Credo chant, Credo in unum Deum, I believe in one God. That's sung out by the choir in sustained imitative counterpoint, with more archaic long note notation. The chant is lifted up by the music, there's no attempt to apologise for it or disguise it. The beginning of Bach's credo is striking because in many traditional settings of the Mass, the priest intones the credo in unum deum phrase solo, then the chorus takes up the words of the credo itself. And you can find that even in Masses as late as Bruckner's E minor Mass or Stravinsky's Mass. 
Bach, however, remains Protestant enough to want to do without the priest as leader. The congregation takes the lead here. Luther would certainly have approved of that. Yet at the same time, we find that stress on continuity. For many Protestants, the Reformation, initiated by Martin Luther, represented a complete break with the past, especially the Roman Catholic traditional past. Those reformers saw the church as corrupt, a misrepresenter of the gospel message. Some of them even branded it antichrist. There's no such message here. Bach is Catholic in the broadest sense. Indeed, Bach's Catholicism extends even more broadly than that, because he's quite capable of bringing in secular, profane elements. And we find that in one of the greatest, most movingly devotional numbers in all the B minor Mass, the Crucifixus. This is a central passage for all Christians, whether they're Lutheran, Catholic or whatever. Bach chooses the form of the Passacalia, or Chacon. This is a form that's built up over repetitions of a theme in the bass. It's a rather worldly form. Indeed, the name Passacalia means dance in a passageway or an alley. But it's not just that. Bach chooses a particular kind of bass, a chromatic falling bass. ancestry of that bass line is fascinating. Many of the finest examples of vocal passacalias built up on a chromatic falling bass are operatic or secular, expressing the kind of worldly sentiments Bach's church cantatas often urged his devout congregation to abjure. We find that bass theme, for instance, in the lament of the abandoned nymph in Monteverdi's Lamento della Ninfa, or famously in the equally love-tormented abandoned figure of Queen Dido in Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. Bach clearly learned a great deal from the expressive language of Baroque opera. He adopted it strikingly in his passion settings. And now is he doing the same here in the B minor mass? That secular-derived bass figure is combined with anguished, sighing, falling phrases from the chorus, full of the kind of heightened expression that's more typical of musical theatre. But here it is used in a devotional context, a crucial, literally crucial devotional context, the meditation on the sacrifice and suffering of Christ. How telling it all is.
We've concentrated on Bach's use of voices, yet there are also times when the orchestra is showcased, where, for instance, it takes over what Wilfred Mellers wonderfully characterised in Bach's music as the dance of God. We hear, first of all, the trumpets and drums in the Gloria, and then cavorting strings and woodwind. So it is, after all, possible to see Bach's B minor Mass as a summation of his experience as a composer, and especially as a Christian devotional composer. It's rather moving to consider this as a product of the imagination of the very old Bach, blind, or at least partially blind, near the end of his life, and possibly disillusioned with his experience as a church composer at St Thomas's in Leipzig. He certainly had to contend with a lot of philistinism from employers and members of the congregation, with demands that his music be less complicated. Bach famously got off to an inauspicious start when the town clerk of Leipzig, Dr Abraham Platz, noted on Bach's appointment that since they couldn't obtain the services of Christoph Graupner, no less, we must settle for second best. Platz has earned a kind of immortality for that remark alone. So we find the old Bach possibly increasingly aware of his own solitude, turning directly to God. It's not even clear whether he intended his last great works, The Art of Fugue or The Mass in B minor, to be performed. There's no record of them ever being so. Yet in this process, it seems Bach finds something within himself, and within his private musical devotion to a God who, as his choice of text in the B minor Mass shows, transcends the narrow limits of one Christian denomination. At the end of the Mass, Bach finds peace in the most visionary terms, as the music of the Gratius Agimus movement, we give thee thanks, is transformed to fit the words Dona Nobis Pacem, grant us peace. Now the trumpets are not dancing, but joining in the song. Another aspect of the B minor Mass we haven't considered, and it might be a good point at which to end. The Mass in B minor also represents something new, something very important and new. It is a self-standing, non-liturgical statement of faith. It's far too big for performance as part of a church mass. Indeed, it's even bigger than Beethoven's Missa Solemnis. The threefold Kyrie alone lasts 20 minutes for just three vocal phrases. If it's performed at all, it could only be, as it became in the 19th century, as a concert work. 
So, religious statement and expression of spirituality moves out of the church into the secular arena, just as the world, this is the age of enlightenment, don't forget, was beginning to question the centrality of the church, whether represented by sacraments or teachings from the pulpit. And today, in an age where we are supposedly witnessing the triumph of secularism, at least in modern Europe, Bach's music in the B minor mass still speaks to people who struggle with the texts and dogmas of traditional Christian faith. Was that ever Bach's intention? Whether it was or not, I can't help feeling that he would have been delighted 